Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of hundreds of movie scores considered worth talking about, and we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us John Corleano's score for the 1998 globe-trotting, century-spanning musical saga, The Red Violin. The Red Violin was written by Don McKellar and Francois Girard. It was produced by Niv Fishman, and it was directed by Francois Girard. John, tell us a little about the Red Violin. Well, the eponymous Red Violin is the masterpiece of fictional 17th century Italian luthier Niccolo Busotti. And we see that violin over the course of centuries change hands, become folded into the lives and stories of many different people in many different times and places, culminating in its sale at an auction in Montreal in the present day. It stars in its various historical eras, first Carlo Cecchi and Irene Grazioli, then, a hundred years later, Jean-Luc Budeau and Christophe Conch, then a hundred years later, Greta Skaki and Jason Fleming, then 70 years later, Sylvia Chang, and then finally in the present day, Colm Fior and Samuel L. Jackson. So the movie is told in a series of flash-forwards and flashbacks between 1680s Cremona, 1790s Vienna, 1890s Oxford, England, 1960s Shanghai, and 1997 Montreal. As the singular and fateful instrument is passed from player to player and story to story, all woven together by the music of John Corigliano and animated by the actual violin playing of Joshua Bell. Meh? How do we say meh on this show? <laughs> uh, uh, good enough? Good enough. Yeah. So remind me, had you seen this before? Yeah, I saw it when it came out, but you hadn't, right? That's right. I did not see it when it came out. I remembered it. I knew what it was. And uh, yeah, I had some kind of false impressions of what it was going to be that put me off it. Ooh, I am very interested in what false impressions you had. I just got the sense that it was going to be one of these movies all about the perfumed mystery of historical (laughs) classical culture. I thought it was going to have this kind of soft focus, dreamy, you know, naked butts and candles and... uh, (laughs) It's got that. And it does. And I think that's probably why I thought that, because I must have seen some trailer or gotten enough of an impression (laughs) that it was that kind of movie. And I'm hesitant about that whole romance novel take on the past and on high culture. And And you're now saying that that is a false impression of this movie? Well, I guess I I, I didn't realize it was going to be such a sort of short story collection Uh kind of presentation. In fact, when it goes to that place in one segment... It seems sort of like it's playing with it and having fun with it, but uh, I'm interested what you... It's having something with it. <laughs> I mean, what do you think of it? I, uh, I'm i getting the sense maybe that you, you have at least one eye to roll at this. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I have one eye to roll at this. Yeah, you're right. It's an anthology movie. It's really these 
episodic vignettes that don't really connect with each other outside of the violin that is connecting them together. And so, yeah, with One Eye, I really respect particularly the work that Corleano does here to unify these disparate stories and to make the whole thing be about the violin and the music that it makes the whole time. And then with my other eye, yeah, I want to roll it at exactly the kind of gauzy romanticism of how classical music works that I thought you were describing. Uh, What I'm saying is, to my pleasant surprise, the overall feeling I got from the movie wasn't really that at all. And I felt relief, like, oh, it's not necessarily trying to sell me a scented candle. It's, uh, (laughs) It's much more about the potential of this artificial structure. What if we follow this thing through the seasons of history, through all of its different incarnations? I agree. I think it's a cool idea to have the main character be not a character, but an instrument, and then, you know, send it on this odyssey through time and geography. I think my favorite bits in the movie were these kind of transitional moments when we see the circumstances that led the violin to change hands and to pass through time. I think I agree. Those are the probably the best sequences. I mean, what's my clear standout single favorite sequence? I bet you're going to say the same one. Yeah, but I'm going to let you say it because... <laughs> <laughs> right. I've been wondering, how are we going to treat this? <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I mean, maybe we can start by saying, I think we're both referring to the sequence in the movie, which is credited in the movie credits as being the gypsies. There are gypsy violin players who are credited as such in the titles. Yeah, every reference to this movie refers to this as the gypsy sequence, the gypsy music, and it passes through the hands of many gypsies over the course of the 19th century. Right. And, you know, we touched on the uh, political niceties of that a little bit in our Young Frankenstein episode when you said that, you know, we shouldn't say gypsy anymore. They're the Romani people. But, you know, the idea of what gypsy even meant was kind of vague and romanticized in the first place. And I feel like this movie is evoked that ethnographically imprecise romantic notion of gypsy that we can sniff at nowadays, but that's what it's talking about. The sequence of the movie that transitions from the Vienna story at the end of the 18th century and traces the violin's passage from there uh, over the next hundred years in the hands of these Romani people living their itinerant lifestyle all across Europe. That is condensed into this great sequence with one of my favorite pieces of music in the movie where we see the violin being played by a series of different people, different ages, and there's a cool camera effect where the camera has obviously somehow been fixed in place relative to the violin. So the violin is staying perfectly centered in the frame, but then uh, it fades between the different players as they're playing it in these different settings and it's the same piece of music played continuously. It's this great Eastern European fantasy on the main themes that he's already set up. And this was such a cool evocation of, you know, the sands of time and the twirling, gnarled branches of history reaching backwards and forwards and up and down and when this kind of thing happens in the movie this is its strength
Yeah, that's a very gratifying sequence, and it is kind of a microcosm of what the movie aspires to be, that life goes on, but this object has a continuity as an object, and because it's an object that produces music, it's also an embodiment of some kind of elusive but vital human spirit soul thing something, right? Is that what this movie is about? Yes, vital human spirit soul something is what this movie is about, which is ultimately what I want to roll my one eye at i think so you're rolling your eye at that not just at the naked butts and bath time you're rolling your eye at the premise basically that this is a thing worth making a movie about no i think the premise of following the violin is interesting and like i say when the movie is doing just that i'm really into it i think that the subtext of the premise that there is some mystical magical essence that is contained within the violin is to roll my eye at The whole thing feels like it is in service of this uncomfortable notion that I come across as an actual professional musician myself all the time, which is the notion that music happens by magic and that you must be open to the magic and the magic is inexplicable and unapproachable and you must worship at the altar of the magic in order to commune with it. And that's how music happens. And that I resent. Is it the fact that it's embodied in this violin that makes it seem wrongheaded to you? Because I imagine if there was a movie just about say some song that is sung through the ages and in every age they sing it and it shows something about their spirit you wouldn't mind that or would you still mind that well i mean you know that sort of is this movie isn't it well yes that's what corleano has made this movie into by writing this unifying theme that gets given voice in all these slightly varied ways through the time and i think that is a good thing to do. And if there were another movie that was more explicitly about a certain song, that sounds pretty cool. I would see that movie. So that it's something about the physical, the fetishization of the instrument that seems wrong to you. It's the fetishization of the ineffable passion that is uh, instantiated in the violin by, spoiler alert, somebody's blood. And this is what imbues it with the power to become the genius violin and the sex violin. (laughs) First of all, spoilers. Uh, This is a spoiler show. You're going to find out what happens to all the owners of the red violin. And you're going to find out why it's red. You just found out. You probably already knew. You knew. It's not actually really a spoiler. Yeah, you knew when you read the title. It's so obvious. Yeah, come on. I mean, this is, it is playing off of the mythology that surrounds things like Stradivarius violins and you know why is it that the Stradivarius violins have this particular sound and are so wonderful oh it's because of the varnish it's because there's something magical in the varnish (gasps) maybe it's blood like this is an actual myth in the music world that is like a classical bedtime story that this movie kind of grows out of I didn't know that I thought they made it up and it's hokey and it's done in the movie it's isn't it hokey come on I I look forward to you admitting that certain things in this movie are pretty hokey yeah Hokey. I think I agree that lots of things in this movie are hokey. I guess it just... You know, I'll I'll be honest about my experience watching it. The first time I watched it, I spent the first two segments, probably, really not knowing exactly what spirit the movie was in. I couldn't tell how moved and by what it wanted me to be. But then when we reached the surprise ending at the end of the second segment, when the child prodigy spoiler alert, just drops dead. I thought, oh, I see. It's short stories. It's like, uh, you know, some kind of O. Henry, you know, Guy de Maupassant, 
old school short story construction where you're heading in one direction and then a twist of fate. Think of that, which is a hokey idea as a 19th century kind of storytelling idea. But I have a way of taking a twist of fate as a thing that it's fun to be given a few of in a row. And yeah, it seemed like the spirit of stories was the spirit I should be in. And once I got in that spirit, hokiness is no longer such a sin. Hmm. I enjoy a hokey little yarn sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) To me, this movie didn't cross that line of offending me with telling a fairy story. And I expected it to. So it had some kind of restraint that mattered to me and wasn't good enough for you. Do you have a sense of like what would have made it okay to still be saying, hey, music, that's some kind of emotional through line in the human story, right? In some way that maybe has a vague spiritual importance? Does that (laughs) very concept offend you? No, that sounds good when you say that. That sounds fine. (laughs) Perhaps paradoxically... I think that the case for music being this emotional and somewhat spiritual through line that is common to music makers through the ages and around the world, that case is best made in the music itself, I think. I think Corleano has done a pretty incredible job of making that happen just in the music. Yeah, I think it's an incredible score because it essentially is the meaning of the movie. Yeah. What does music represent about the human soul? Where does it come from? What does it mean that this is happening? The only answers that really are available here are whatever this melody means. Right. That's what the movie means. It means this. Yeah, this melody and the set of chords that undergird it, this is the magic, you know? This is the ineffable passion that the story is trying so hard to incarnate in, you know, we'll make a story about passion, okay? That's some element of what this music has to say. And then we'll make a different story about virtuosity and the tolls of virtuosity. And we'll make a story about culture clash and the struggle between being accepting or rejecting of old thoughts versus new thoughts. And all of those attempts to incarnate this ineffability felt like they paled in comparison to the actual experience that the music is able to sidestep all of that and just put directly into your head. I felt it almost as the way a music video tries to incarnate the feeling of the music into series of images and scenes and concepts and sometimes Hmm. sort of a dramatic situation. But the point is just to project the musical emotional experience provisionally into dramatic production space This movie managed to work that way, which is a testament to Corleano, absolutely, because it wasn't designed around the music. He composed the score. I mean, he composed some of it in advance. We'll talk about exactly what was done when. But the movie was not written as a response to this music. The music was written to fulfill the needs of the movie. And it turns out that the needs of the movie are sort of to have a musical reason to exist. And then he he wrote the ground in underneath the movie. And then the whole movie becomes a visualization of the music. 
And that's why I accepted all of the dubious ways of embodying music, because they seemed like various sort of passing thoughts about how to illustrate it. Oh, Hmm. music is kind of like a violin, right? Or, you know, music is kind of like if a person were in a violin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That is sort of what music is like, in the same sense that some pop song is sort of like, you know, someone looking out a window and then going underwater and whatever, you know. Yeah, I actually really like that as an overarching idea, that the whole movie is a music video that mushes together in your head into a mirror of this music. And maybe that's why I like the parts of the movie best that are themselves like music videos. like the montage, yeah. Like the montage sequence that I was describing earlier. And then the similar montage when we see the violin taken from England to Shanghai, and it ends up in a pawn shop for... 40 years and time passes and the camera moves in and out and it has a similar feeling of being about montage and time more than it's about the drama. Or the earlier montage through time, the first one that spans from the violin's creation in the 1680s to, you know, it spends a century in this orphanage in a monastery somewhere in the Alps. We see the generations of orphans playing, again, the same continuous piece of music, but fading between different players to denote that this violin is passing through time before your eyes. Yeah, very gratifying. Yeah, I think we're in agreement. Those are the most successful sequences. Yeah, because those are the sequences that are the best expression of what it's really setting out to do, which is be a whole big music video of time. I think that the director, Girard, really thought, what if there were sort of a music video movie of violin music, classical music? What if that had a movie? That is really the impetus here, and it is really a remarkable piece of work on John Corleano's part that he wrote music that, to any degree, makes sense of that intention. That's a tall order. But also, a pretty cool one for a composer to have handed to them. It's pretty unique to be put in a situation of having to write music to represent music (laughs) and structure and motivate the entire movie because it's music. That's a cushy job, but he really makes great use of it. Do you remember, I think when we were talking about Soul, the recent Pixar movie, which is another movie about music and music making, and you said that it's kind of uh, the... Mr. Holland's opus problem that you can't put the actual transcendent piece of art that the movie is about in the movie doesn't work. Yeah, that's a phrase I've used in life and I will probably use again on this show. I think of that as the epitome of you can't show something if you say that it's life changing. (laughs) Yeah, and he just coasts through it here. He kind of does it here. Yeah, he writes this piece of music with the intention that it is the main character of the movie. It's this piece of music that can flex and express itself in different guises and different styles and different eras of classical music. And also the different turns and tensions within it can be deployed to resonate with different stories and relationships among people. He kind of has found his way through the Mr. Holland's Opus problem here writing something that seems so essential that it is the beating heart of the movie. Yeah, that's really nice to have pointed out. I hadn't even really thought about what an embarrassment this movie could have been if the composer had been intimidated by that task 
and had written something even remotely obvious or insincere about how it tried to achieve that, it would just be a big cringe. Yes. And it isn't at all. Well, it's, If you cringe at this movie, it's not because of the music. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of cringe in this movie, but right, no, it's if there's not cringe in this movie, it's because of the music. <laughs> that's what I think, really. Yeah, I think that's right. I, uh, I mean, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that there's some good production, good directing, good sure, performances in, sure. in parts of the movie. In parts. You know, when we picked this at the end of the last episode, I said, oh, it's notable for being a score by someone who was mostly known as a classical concert hall composer mm -hmm. and who only dabbles in film scores, isn't really a film score specialist. In fact, I think this was his last dabble. It's actually not, but it's his last dabble that reached the screen. He wrote a rejected score for a Mel Gibson movie, Edge of Darkness, I think it was called, hmm. that got replaced well, with some uh, Howard Shore music, which might be an interesting topic someday, but... It, uh, it also might not. It also might not. Anyway, at the end of the last episode, I said, let's see what that looks like. Let's see how daring he dared be, I said, because my impression of what John Corleano might bring to a film score was that he might bring a sense of compositional entitlement, yeah. so to speak, that a film composer might not. He sort of did that, as you're pointing out, but not in the sense I thought. I thought it was going to be his orchestral and harmonic technique was going to be more florid and weird and arrogant than a normal composer. And that's not what he did. He had the confidence to just meet the task without being cowed by it. And that in its way is also a kind of daring. I think everything you just said could reasonably describe his first film score of being compositionally florid and self-consciously avant-garde. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I knew that music. In a way that sometimes annoys me, and that's his score for uh, the film Altered States from 1980, which is about William Hurt taking mind-altering drugs until he turns into, like, some kind of lizard monster or something, right? I think he takes mind-altering drugs and turns into a monster, but doesn't he also just go in an isolation tank and turn into, you know, a monkey and various things? I haven't seen it all the way through. Yeah. That's on our list. We might do Altered State someday. But it is, you know, weirdo stuff happening to a guy, and this was his first attempt at being a classical concert composer, writing a film score, and he, I think, reasonably figured, well, they asked me to do this because they want me to, you know, do some expertly weird stuff. That's what I'm here for. That happened because Ken Russell, the director of Altered States, he apparently went to an L.A. Philharmonic concert where they were playing Corleano's clarinet concerto, which was one of his best-known pieces, which sounds like this. Ken Russell apparently was so excited by how big and overwhelming and, you know, kind of mind-altering sure. it was. He thought, I'm just going to get that guy to write my film score. The guy who wrote this piece that just happened to be on the concert and contacted him and said, I want you to write my film score. And Corleano, his personality as a composer that I got a sense of from watching a few interviews with him is he really likes to try new things. The idea of addressing himself to new compositional problems, new musical genres and constraints is important to him. He always wants to be trying something he hasn't tried before. And so he said, yeah, I would like to try this. He didn't want to become a film composer. He just wanted to try his hand at it. So then 
Apparently, by the time we come to the Red Violin in 1997, when they're making it, he wasn't sure he wanted to do that again because he had done it. Yeah, I saw where he was saying that it was very important to him if he were to do another film score, that it be for a director that he felt comfortable working with, that he felt he could communicate with productively. And he found that in Gerard sufficiently for him. He had done another score for a very poorly received and forgotten movie that I have never seen called Revolution with Al Pacino. Hmm. Yeah, nor I. In 1985, that apparently he had been pretty pleased with his own work there and was very frustrated and disappointed that because the movie didn't do well, the soundtrack was never released and he sort of felt like it had all been for naught. He didn't want to run the risk of that happening again, so he didn't think he would write more movies. Yeah, but then he was kind of swayed to this job because it was a movie about classical music where the music was going to be foregrounded. It called for him to write music pre-production because it was going to have to be performed on screen. And it also therefore gave him the opportunity to create concert pieces out of it. We should probably talk through the timeline of his composition process. Yeah, just like the movie's relationship to music as a whole is a little strange. The order of events is a little strange. The director got Joshua Bell on board first because he wanted his input about violins and the history of violins and I think that his intention originally was for all of the music played on screen to be real historical music by notable composers of those eras, by Vivaldi and Bach and Paganini. He thought Joshua Bell would play this music and they were discussing how to do it and who would write the score. I think it was possibly Joshua Bell's suggestion or maybe it was the suggestion of Peter Gelb at Sony Classical, something like that. Anyway, they called in Corleano and met with him and he said he would write the music But I think at first they were saying, you'll just write the underscore and we'll play Paganini on screen. And Corleano said, I think that's a dramatic mistake. I think that you should play original music as the source music because, in his words, this movie needs really strong glue to hold it together. Right. You're going to need some musical glue that runs even unto the period music that's played on screen. Yeah, I mean, what a good move. What an important decision for him to make. I mean, right, that really is the reason this whole thing is anything, is because he has written these themes and this harmonic material and set forth these ways that it can become variably instantiated in these different guises and different genres within classical music. But it was his notion that the main character is going to be the violin. If the violin is going to be the only constant among these different stories, then we need to have a discrete and identifiable and constant voice of the violin, a spirit of the violin that comes out in these different stories, different ways. Right. And you're right. That is an essential decision. I think that is the decision that makes the movie tolerable to me for all the reasons I was just saying, because... The main character becomes not even the violin, the melody itself. Right. The main character becomes a musical character, which is how musical forms work. In a classical abstract form, the character, if there's a character, is material. And by doing that with the source music, he made it true of the movie, and it's what makes the movie work. So the first thing he decides is, well, we're going to have a unifying theme that gets variations derived off of it, variations through the centuries, through the eras of music. What's a good way to unify a bunch of different variations of music? And he thought of the Baroque form, which is called a chaconne. 
you know, all these Baroque forms start as dances. And the idea of a chaconne is it takes a single set of chords or a bass line sometimes and treats that as the skeleton that will repeat and have different things built on top of it. I think he was also inspired to use a chaconne because it's a story about a violin and one of the big landmark megaliths of the violin historical landscape is this piece we've been hearing, which is by Bach. This is the last movement of one of his violin partitas. This piece of music is revered by violinists as containing all of the breadth of what a violin can do. It's an important building block of the whole violinistic art. So with this inspiration, he's writing music for a movie about a violin that has to evolve and adapt but maintain this through line. All of that for Corleano pointed back to the idea of a chaconne. In some of the videos of Corleano I watched, he was doing some teaching. You know, he's a composition teacher as well. It seemed like a recurring idea for him is to approach composition from, as he calls it, an architectural perspective where you, mm-hmm. you map out the necessary floor plan, so to speak, to fulfill the needs of your piece. His idea being that the real creative response to the musical problem posed, to the compositional problem, happens when you make a plan for solving all those problems and then you sort of use your craft and your intuition and your spontaneous voice to fill it in because you can trust in the plan. And I completely understand why that's reassuring, especially to a composer in the concert hall tradition where you're really just standing out there and making noise in front of the audience. It's nerve-wracking to write a piece like that with no no assignment other than write a piece. So yeah. to tell yourself exactly what you're doing and why before you start doing it is important. So that's really what this is, is a kind of taking the task of this movie and thinking, what girders does it need? His answer to the musical problem posed by this movie was to write these chords, his chaconne. And so these are the chords he picked. They're really only two note chords, which is a kind of a stretch of the definition of chords, perhaps, but it's these series of intervals. Yeah, there's a lot of strange aspects of this. We're just calling it chaconne because he calls it chaconne, but uh, they're not exactly chords. Right. It's not actually used as a chaconne, but they are definitely a rock that he can Mm -hmm. return to and build everything on top of. They're definitely serving that function. Which indeed he does. He definitely does build things on top of this but I agree that it's not exactly treated as a chaconne where in a strict Bach-style one, you would be able to exactly map these chords through each of the repetitions that you hear. And that's not quite what you do here. I mean, I went looking to hear these intervals, this progression through different things that happen, and you can. You know, here's the music, which is uh, supposed to be in sort of a mid-classical style for the trip to Vienna. You can hear the same interval kind of widening in the middle of the texture the same way.
but it veers off of it after a while. Mm-hmm. That seems to be common to it. A lot of the time where I was going through and kind of trying to pick out, oh, where, where are the chords? Where's the chaconne in this? I started to kind of feel like I did when I was, you know, fudging my Shankarian analysis homework. <laughs> Just like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's in there. So it's, it's a rough inspiration. It's, uh, I think the exact method of deploying these chords through his composition is a little opaque, uh, you know, by design and by style. Yes. When I said, we'll see how daring he is, that is a form of daring that was really striking to me. Again, not about flamboyance, but about the confidence that his compositional structure would work if he stuck to it. And he did not need to worry about sticking to it closely enough that it would read. It actually has a wonderful effect on this movie that it's not so obvious as to be, oh, here comes that music again, which means here comes the violin again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they're playing the same tune. The tune changes. Everything is constantly mutating through his compositional voice. But even just this scheme and these chords, and as you said, rising into the tritone. So what the chords are is... Yeah, let's just play, let's strip it down, which you hear the stripped down version a lot. You hear it right at the beginning in the main titles, and then uh, you know, at various points, just the music is a statement of these intervals, just stepping, stepping as they go. Did you think that there was a possibility that this rhythm, when the chords are exposed, they're frequently in this rhythm, da, 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 uh-huh. that that was some kind of nod to or derivation from the rhythm of the famous Bach Chacon that's da, 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 da. Yeah, absolutely. I think that any inspiration from the Bach Chacon that you can imagine in here is probably there. Right, because it too is in D minor, right? And this Yes. Not always because it moves around as it needs to. Right, it moves, as, yes, but it does start in D minor. Here it is when you first hear it. Yeah, so let's just name these intervals as they go by. It starts with minor third. Right. Then the top note moves up a step, becomes a fourth. Then it moves up a half step, now it's a tritone. And then, crucially, the fourth step in the chaconne, instead of that top note in the interval moving up, now the bottom note slips down. So now we've widened out to a fifth, but it's a fifth that is based on C sharp instead of on D. And now the top note is going to start moving up again, and it creeps up to a minor sixth, a major sixth, and then a major seventh. Yeah, I think of that, the major sixth, I mean, it, maybe it's a major sixth, or maybe it's a diminished seventh, because sure. you're still thinking of this as in D minor, so that's probably a B flat. Fair enough. But the point is, it feels to me very much about widening the overarching feeling that I get. It's start here, and we stretch, and we stretch, and we stretch, and we stretch, and it stretches all the way up to a major seventh, mm-hmm. or possibly a diminished octave. This is an unstable dissonant interval, which must needs resolve back into the stability of an octave, which is sort of the same stability that we started with, and indeed this seven-step progression that we just talked through. It starts right up again. It cycles back to the same spot and goes through the same thing again. It just finds a way to keep widening and widening 
until it gets back to the place where it started widening from. And then it widens again. You know what it reminded me of? Um, the, the auditory, the sonic uh, illusion that we talked about that they use in... Yeah, uh, you got it. Dunkirk, I forget the name of it. Someone's cycle. Yeah, the shepherd scale. Which, shepherd scale. Yeah, exactly right. This auditory illusion that, yeah, that we talked about Christopher Nolan being obsessed with and Hans Zimmer putting in the score for Dunkirk, where you mess with the overtones comprising the sound and make it so that it can keep rising and rising continuously without winding up in a higher spot than it started because of the cycling and corkscrewing of this overtone pattern. This put me in mind of that because it felt to me like a composed shepherd scale. It is somehow constantly widening and stretching, and yet through its stretching, it keeps cycling back through the same territory. Of oh, I should, maybe I shouldn't say blood in this case, but this is the uh, you know the life force that he wants to breathe into everything in the movie. In Dunkirk, it was about the moment-to-moment nausea of being stuck in a ever-increasing loop of anxiety. But here has a slow tread to it. It seems to be about something bigger. Yes. It's a solution to the movie's needs on a couple of different levels. One, because he needed, as he said, strong glue to make sure that this movie was unified, which was by design a piecemeal set of sequences filmed in different continents with a completely different cast with nothing in common except for the fact that there was this violin in them. So the music makes continuity, but it also makes meaning about that scheme. I saw Corleano said he was responding to the, his words, the sense of fate, inevitability, and the inability to stop it from moving, that it's like this giant machine yeah, that never can stop. I like that. That idea of fate being the point of the movie does correspond excellently both to the sound and the structure of this cyclical chords. Yeah, he has written this thing with the idea of it representing the continuity of time and continuity of this instrument through time. He wrote the continuousness into the molecules of it. Because it serves this connective structural function, it really is saying that's what this whole movie is. And I guess the question is, do you notice it enough to receive that meaning? I made a note to myself in my uh, viewing here. Remember, before you learn this score well and forget this, <laughs> the Chacon structure was not at all apparent to you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you could hear bits of it. You can kind of tell when it gets to the tritone step, right? That's always an easy thing to pick out. Yeah, in that Journey to Vienna cue that you played earlier, that's really what's so wonderful about that cue. He knows you have really taken in that that tritone is part of some machine of fate yeah. that extends beyond this era, and yet, as it's happening, he has fit it entirely into the classical Mozartian style that he's writing this cue in. It doesn't have to break any Mozartian rules. It just shows up there, and you know, oh, that's happening because of fate. Right. But then it just keeps going as it would in Vienna in 1790. Yeah, that's right. He does need to go through the whole sequence of chords to evoke it. He gets a lot of mileage out of the first two steps. 
That's, in fact, the very first thing that you hear in the movie is high, soft strings just playing the first interval, and then they widen out and step to the second interval, the fourth. And it stops. And then it kind of starts up again, and this time it goes one step further. You hear the third, and then the fourth, and then the augmented fourth, the tritone. In those places where it's exposed like that, it does suggest whatever machine is driving the drama is speaking somehow through that expanding, as you're saying. So, yeah, so this progression that is mapped out here in the main titles is the chaconne, quote-unquote, that he wrote first. And then the next thing that he needed to write, again, now before the movie has been shot at all, he needs to write a melody to go on top of these chords. Because the first time that we're going to hear the melody in the movie, it's sung. It's not played on a violin or even by an orchestra. It's sung by Anna, the wife of Busotti, who is pregnant. So he wrote this melody, we hear her singing it, and then we hear it a couple of times after that on some other instruments, we hear like a whole violin section playing it. A little bit later on, we hear some cellos playing it in a scene when she and her husband are looking at the moon. But crucially, He holds back the association of this melody with the solo violin, with the Joshua Bell performance that is held back until the moment when Busotti begins to apply the special magical varnish to the violin, the reddening, I like to call it. Mm -hmm. That was the original title for this movie when it was a horror movie. That's right. The instant of the reddening is the first time that we hear the solo violin take up this melody that had been in the actual voice in the body of this woman. This is her melody, and now it is becoming infused and spirited into the violin, happens on this moment, and in that moment, I kind of felt like the way it starts with this single step, bottom. And then it retraces that same ground and goes a little bit further and then steps up again. And the way that it kind of is making a series of repeated gestures, one building upon the next, in that moment I thought it was very nicely wedded to the brush strokes of the varnish being applied to the violin, of putting a little something and then going back over the same space, but going a little further and then brushing farther. It had a brushstroke feeling to me. It does match up nicely at that point. Yeah. So the melody builds out from there and it follows the course of these chords. So the first couple phrases of the melody are unaccompanied and then that third is laid down. That's the first step. And then that widens out now to the fourth and the augmented fourth. 
And then now the bottom note slips down and stepping up again to the minor sixth and the major sixth and then the major seventh and now we're back where we started and we go through the circle again. I mean, this melody, it's probably worth trying to close read this melody because the melody is the movie, as I keep saying. I really feel like... Yeah. Da, 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 da. Gosh, what does that mean? Because you are going to have to think about what that means a lot while you're watching this movie. I think that he said that the idea that it's the lullaby that she's singing to her own pregnancy was the point of departure for that melody, that it's like, hmm, that's a very intimate, basic lullaby gesture. That's a very comforting kind of a sound. But then this reach on the next phrase, da, 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 just in five notes there, he has managed to create an ambiguity about what style we're in, what scale mode we're in, what era we're in. That's not really plausible as 17th century tune, but it doesn't grate obviously against it because it's so isolated. We don't know exactly what it is. Also the phrase structure, that there's a rest on the first beat of that bar. Da da, da 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 da. It creates a sense of being both a composed melody that exists and has an identity and a kind of incomplete, spontaneous utterance that's working itself out every time it appears because of those little breaths, little phrases. And to do that with a tiny, tiny piece of material is very impressive to me. The amount that those five notes or seven notes have to do for this movie is enormous. Yeah. And so the amount of care in choosing them, that's what I spend a lot of time finding remarkable as I thought about this score, that, you know, picking the thematic material, that's the hard task for everyone. That task has so much weight sitting on it here, and the material he wrote is so small and simple and obvious, and yet it's doing so much. He seems to revel in how small it is because he you know, boils it down and deconstructs it down to just the individual gestures, starting out with that first gesture, which is just the motion of a single step from D to E. That's the beginning of the tune. That's that first phrase, that first brush stroke. He uses that throughout all these different iterations to tell you, oh, here it comes, here comes that melody, here comes Anna's tune that has become infused into the violin. I like to go back to the orphanage montage. We first hear this section, a whole bunch of kids playing violins and playing this, you know, late Baroque-ish piece that at first doesn't seem like it is part of the thematic material that we've heard so far. That could sort of be source music, could be some Vivaldi piece that we don't know. And then the red violin makes its appearance. We see the monks 
purchasing it from a wandering peddler, bringing it back into the monastery and giving it to the kid who's probably you know the best violin player that they have and he gets to be the soloist. Then he stands in front of the section and starts playing. And as soon as he starts playing, then we recognize, ah, yes, here's that step. Just the step from D to E tells us now we're in that material we hear the accompaniment first and then we hear the solo on top of it that tells us here is the introduction of the violin into this storyline into this milieu you know it goes down through the century of all the different orphans who get to play the violin until it lands in the hands of this kid Kaspar Weiss he plays an audition for the music teacher who's going to take him to Vienna and that starts out with that same interval and let's just really milk this and show you how much of a violin prodigy I am by how much vibrato I can put in this one note. And it's just that one step. That one also then goes on. He goes da-da-da, but then the next note isn't the same interval as it is in the theme. It doesn't go up a fifth. Right, but it's an interval. It's like he's distilled it down to there's the step, and then there's the step leading into a big leap. It's like somebody, you know, backing up and taking a long jump. So the idea of a step that builds into a leap, and yeah, it's not a leap of the same interval every time. That's one of the dimensions that can be varied as it gets varied in all these different ways through the movie. But the idea of a step and then a leap, if you just look at it in those terms, everything is that. Sometimes we hear those things overlapped on top of each other, kind of collaging against itself like this very, very lovely music in the Oxford sequence when the you know impetuous virtuoso's girlfriend leaves and they're writing letters back and forth to each other and you kind of hear the text of the letters being overlapped with one another and the music is doing this incredibly sophisticated beautifully unsettling and uh, unsettlingly beautiful stuff where you hear the statements of the things starting on top of each other and matter the language no words can convince me that you're not gone my love it's moscow at last and my very first night was unspeakably dreary can any one nation be quite so abysmal? What is this nonsense? Or is it just simply... you just kind of left with a sense of there, there was a step, there was a step, and there's that interval, there's an interval. All these little minute atoms of what the tune is doing, you feel like you can smell all of them as it goes by. Yeah, that's what I was saying is the mark of his having come from a less commercial composing tradition than most film composers that he is very comfortable with letting it just be in terms of faint whiffs of things rather than the things themselves. And that cue, the string quartet we were just listening to, where it's sort of fragments of the theme, even that is at least fragments of the theme rather than just an evocation of the contour, like you were saying earlier. When the kid plays an etude faster and faster to the metronome, or le le poussin maître, or whatever he calls it, he pretends he invented it. The piece he's playing which just sounds like it would be some kind of exercise etude. And yet, it has a whiff in it. A whiff. Because it begins with a few notes rising, and then, as in the melody, it goes up and starts descending. 
from a higher note. Yes. That is the kind of thing that is what music students write papers to point out and circle. And as I've expressed before, you expressed, I think, on this episode already, you feel a little like, all right, this is homework, but is it, (laughs) what function is it serving to someone who just likes music rather than likes music analysis? I think it serves in this movie because of the structure of the movie and because of the places where it's obvious, you carry with you as you're watching it a sense that, oh, this music kind of is probably all related. I think it is. Yeah. And the fact that you don't always know why, and sometimes it's so faint a whiff that you aren't even sure it's there, actually has a wonderful effect on the movie. I think the imaginary version of the movie where every piece they played had a very exposed, obvious da-da, da-da-da-da-da in it, the artifice of that would be so much a part of the experience. You couldn't really have a musical experience of each of these moments, but Corleano finds ways to take what is already a tiny fragmentary piece of material and then just leave traces of it or Mm -hmm. write cousins of cousins of it and yet somehow it speaks yeah i'm honestly kind of relieved that (laughs) that you're validating my impression that yeah is this how how am i supposed to draw the analytical line from this to this because i don't think he worried about how you would draw it yeah because he didn't worry about it is the answer because he was content to have it be this muse-like inspiration to himself if you will that if I'm thinking about this tune and I'm trying to be in the world of it, then something will come out that is, you know, sufficiently evocative of it. You can hear the relationships if you're looking for them and you hear enough of them in enough different ways that you wind up hearing the relationships even without looking for them, I think. Like the sort of cousin version of the tune that we see the lady in... Maoist communist China play on the violin because she winds up with it after her mother bought it for her from that pawn shop and then she has to hide it because of the cultural revolution purges don't look kindly on western music but she takes it out from the floorboards of her place and plays it for a kid can definitely hear that these are related, although you might be hard-pressed to say how, or you might have to write an obnoxious, you know, music theory paper in order to explain how. Yeah, that version that she's playing there amateurishly, and I saw Joshua Bell saying that this was the hardest thing for him, was to play like a non-professional right, right. without making it a joke, but not sounding as good as he wants to sound. She's replaying what we saw Pope, the Paganini guy, play in the previous sequence when he's getting some sexual inspiration and starts playing this. <laughs> All right, can, can we just, for a second, what do you think about this? Like, this is... This is pretty eye-rolly stuff, right? Yeah, you're right. This is the same melody that gets used in the piece of music that turns up on the soundtrack album with the title Coitus Musicalis. Mm -hmm. Because that is what is happening. So, you know, I always read some reviews when I do this, and I was surprised to see several reviews saying that they thought this whole sequence was an embarrassment because, like I said, once I got on board with it, I took it to be kind of like it knew it was being, you know, 
kind of tongue-in-cheek. Maybe not all the way in cheek, but it knew it was a hoot. It knew it was silly, I think. You can see it's all the way in the cheek, I mean. <laughs> you can see the tongue, and you can see the cheeks. I mean, this was the real locus of the eye-rolling stuff that I was talking about earlier. The idea that how does he get to be a virtuoso? It's because he is possessed of some kind of demonic magic that only can express itself when he's actually in coitus musicalis. He grabs his girlfriend and says, come on, help me work out a theme. He wrote down this quote, it's your beauty that summons the music. only yourself to blame. It's your beauty that summons the music. And when it comes, I must play. And then, yeah, sure enough, he plays as they... uh, get it on and let me tell you Andy as somebody who is married to a violinist (laughs) I can tell you why are you telling me that I can tell you that that (laughs) never happens Uh, and in fact I watched this with my wife Becky and this was the place that she couldn't stand (laughs) she thought this was so absurd because it suggests that like the magic is what makes it happen the idea that he has to like practice in order to get good enough to play like Joshua Bell playing is absolutely foreign to this paradigm. Later on in the movie, she comes back from her travels to catch him in flagrante delicto with, in fact, with the same Romani girl that he stole the violin from in the first place. Mm -hmm. They could have both been playing violins, but they didn't. Yeah, exactly. But he gets to play the violin as they are going at it furiously. And so his girlfriend comes back hears the sound of the violin music and smiles. Ah, yes, here I come. I'm returning to my violin lover. And then the music gets more intense and more furious and more active. Yeah, he's playing a way he wouldn't be playing if he were alone, she knows. Because she knows that the only way he can make that sound is if he is doing it at the same time and therefore she goes and gets the gun to express her jilted outrage about it. I just thought it was like so obviously knowingly ripe, absurd 19th century tropes of romanticism over the top. I thought it was having fun with pushing that trope so far that yes, the music means he's having sex and that's why she gets the gun. That, that was like a fun kind of operatic overkill. My point is, yeah. you can't play like that while you're having sex if you haven't practiced it while you're not having sex. <laughs> and I think there's room to believe that Frederick Pope <laughs> practices when he's not having sex. He doesn't. <laughs> the movie wants you to believe that that's the only way he can derive sufficient inspiration to play that fast. And that's how she is dead sure that that's what's happening, just by hearing the sound of him playing, because he couldn't just be practicing it. No. I think within the trope, he practices to become technically proficient. But the passion, the magical, spiritual, you know, the soul of the music has to come through passion. That's the romantic idea that if you hear something when you're listening to music, you're hearing a soul being squeezed up by volcanic emotional forces and or sexual energy. And I thought that the goofiness, I mean, it knows that it's being comical because like it plays it for comedy when the stodgy conductor who's annoyed at this bad boy (laughs) soloist that he has to put up with says, well, you know, he'll be here any minute now. Wets your appetite. 
but we can hear the sounds of musical sex coming from the dressing room. That is comedy, right? I actually, while I was watching that sequence, thought, All right. this is kind of a useful joke for thinking about Paganini, you know, the first rock star musician. When he's playing this intensely passionate Paganini Caprice-like etude that Corleano wrote for him, and then they cut to the audience and you see, you know, the young woman looking like, oh, it's giving me feelings. Yeah. I thought that's not a worthless image for people to have in their heads about what people got excited about in the 19th century. All right. All right. And the fact that it's surrounded with this almost campily operatic conceits about his inspiration or it's you and then she's a novelist herself and she must go to Russia for inspiration. The whole conception of the thing seemed like it was to acknowledge that the 19th century had some fairly ridiculous ideas and we're gonna have a taste of them i, I mean i get all right fine 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 i couldn't when, when i was watching i couldn't hear that over the sound of the <laughs> professional violinist i was in the room with rolling her eyes yes well if her point was that's not how things are i agree <laughs> it's not how things are would you agree that what corleano has written for those sequences oh, is uh, absolutely it's magnificent really magnificent and you know let's not miss an opportunity to say that the performance of it by real life contemporary violin virtuoso joshua bell is tremendous yes do you see he got to have a cameo in that sequence yeah when you see the guy from behind and it looks like maybe that's not his real hair it's because it's joshua bell wearing a wig and when you see him playing the violin up close and yeah gosh look at that he's really playing it he's fingering everything this looks very realistic it's because those aren't even his arms. Yeah, that's true. It's Joshua Bell is standing behind him, like sneaking his arm through his jacket or something so that it's actually Joshua Bell's left hand that you see on the fingerboard. Pretty neat trick. Yeah, his fingers are in the movie, but his face is in the movie too. Did you see it? No, when's his face in? He is actually one of the violinists in the orchestra that the Paganini character Frederick Pope is playing in front of, and he impetuously puts up his hands to stop the orchestra from playing, instead of you playing whatever boring state music that the audience paid to come hear me play, I'm going to play this magic sex music I just wrote. <laughs> Joshua Bell is one of the violinists in the orchestra, and you can see him ham it up a little bit and go, oh no, I've been stopped. Oh, I got to watch that. I missed that. Oh, I see, with some mutton chops applied. Yeah, yeah, and like very white makeup. It's funny, I didn't notice that because I did freeze frame this sequence to see, well, what music would they have played? What's this music uh -huh. on the stands? Surprisingly, the music on the stands looks like it's piano music, like they didn't even try to get real parts for a real piece, huh. which I'm surprised. This is a very careful movie, so I thought, oh, they probably took care with this, but no, it looks like they just grabbed a stack of sheet music. You know what else they didn't take care with? I noticed this, I don't know if anybody else has, but in the auction house at the end, or, you know, it's woven throughout the whole movie, but there's a board up on the wall with a digital readout of what the bid is up to, and then it converts that into different currencies. And uh, at various points, you see the bid that has just been mentioned in Canadian dollars at the top of the board, but then all of the different converted currency amounts underneath it don't change even when the top line bid number does change. So there. I didn't notice that. That's a mistake, and I'm sorry that there's a mistake. But I don't believe that there are mistakes in the sidelining, as it were, in the on-screen performance of the music. That is all done really, really carefully. Yeah, I think that no matter what you think of this movie, it needs to be said that as movies about classical music go, 
this one has clearly had care about the depiction of at least the physical details and aspects of classical music's style and culture at various periods. Joshua Bell and Corleano said he had some input into script decisions too. He's listed in the credits as a violin consultant. Yeah. The red violin that you see in the movie is actually, I think, five different custom-made violins from a contemporary violin maker, special for this movie, and all of the... I, I watched a video on YouTube called Luthier Reacts, where a instrument maker was watching it and was really excited at, oh, all of the stuff there, show oh, those are really Baroque instruments. Oh, look, the fingerboard is the way it would have been in that period. Oh, and it's been replaced in the 19th century the way it would have been replaced. All of this stuff has had care put to it. And the thing I've said on shows before, and certainly will find occasion to say, again it always annoys me when historical dramas have willfully clueless evocations of classical music that are just like strings are classical you know (laughs) this is a piano that's a classical instrument so i have written some classical music for this movie that takes place in a very particular time and place this is not like that. It's true. Corleano knows a lot about what he's doing. And when he diverges from what would have been strictly historically accurate, it feels like it's done with self-awareness and with intent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do think that there are intentional anachronisms in the music that are explained by the whole point of the movie being that it's the same spirit of this individual violin that is speaking through all these different time periods. Right. The anachronisms are so gentle and subtle that they become a part of the magic rather than a sense of a whole in the movie. And that itself is a testament to the quality of what he's done here because it's not trivial to write something that's going to represent the music of Paganini and just does and just uh, works. And you say, yeah, I get it. I got what you did. He has just, with ease, written these various caprices, he calls them, the pieces that represent what is played on the violin at various points in history. And we opened a bracket a long time ago on this episode. We started a sentence about, so here's the order he wrote things. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Let's get back to that. So he had to write the melody. He wrote the chords, and then he wrote the melody above them. And then he wrote one other piece of material, which is this sort of dirge melody that also is written above the chords that occurs when people die at the ends of their stories, which happens at the end of pretty much every story, which is a different contour that also matches with the chords. You don't hear it quite as much. This is after the prodigy dies suddenly. We see his uh, former peers at the orphanage playing a string ensemble arrangement of this piece of grieving. Yeah, that's interesting that you hear this as a separate piece. I kind of understood it, and I guess both are equally valid. I kind of understood this as an elaboration on a different part of the theme, kind of taken in a different direction. I think if you look, you can shoehorn in an analysis where this is derived out of some later point of the melody. Yeah, well, that's correct. Everything is interrelated that way. And yet again, these are the kinds of connections that seem dubious when they don't have a function, but they absolutely function here as this big, vague sea of glue of one kind or another. Everything is stuck to everything else, and you're always listening for it. The mystery of the movie is what do these things have to do with each other? Is there a ghost connecting this with that? Maybe, maybe slightly. And so maybe slightly actually has a real role to play here.
Anyway. Yes, the brackets. Yes. End of the sentence that was started an hour ago. He wrote those pieces of material and having those pieces of material then wrote everything that would need to be played in production on screen, on camera, because it needed to be written in advance. And that's all of this music we've been listening to. We mentioned a lot of this already. And then they went off and shot the movie. Joshua Bell went with them so that he could be there to advise and, you know, put his arms around the actor. But Corleano stayed at home and uh, in his free time wrote a full orchestra abstract concert piece from these materials. Which, again, are not yet a score. He hasn't written anything yet to accompany anything on screen. He's written the pieces that are pretending to be source music, but he hasn't written any of the non-diegetic music that will come to be heard in the movie. About that distinction you just made, Hmm. some of this music does actually take a little bit of scoring responsibility into its hands, like especially the cue you were scoffing at where Greta Skaki returns home and hears the music and then realizes that this means she's been betrayed and goes to get the gun. The music is very cleverly, I think, designed to both be the signal that tells her what's going on and accompany the rising sure. drama yeah, as okay, she... Yeah. Yeah, no, the music is <laughs> so wonderful. This is both a piece played by a character and scoring for the scene he's in. And and that happens in a couple other places. There's also that piece. Yes, that's true. When the prodigy, when Caspar and uh, Monsieur Poussin are walking through the streets of Vienna to the palace where they're going to have this audition and they have a little musical playtime bit where he's humming a little jaunty tune. And he says, all right, now hum it backwards. And the kid, because he's amazing, can instantly retrograde the tune. And then they start singing duet, and then the orchestra comes in. And this is all in a jaunty Mozart-Haydn kind of Viennese classical style. But then it becomes essentially scene-setting and era-setting as you see them walk toward the palace. So all of this needed to be planned in advance. Yes, so all of the pieces of music that the production of the movie demanded, he needed to write that in pre-production rather than in post-production, which is usually when the score is written. So concurrently with the production of the movie, yeah, he sits by himself and writes yeah, a classical concert piece to elaborate in a concert setting on the basic materials that he has. Written. This concert piece, which he calls... Chacon for violin and orchestra. It's like a 17-minute-long concert piece, which Joshua Bell has performed in concert many times, and is a you know piece in the repertoire now. And then the movie came to him after it was done shooting, and then he had to write the underscore parts. And so he dipped into the Chaconne, the concert piece, for some of the material that he would then sync to picture. Yeah, the really striking thing that he did carry over from that is this opening gesture when you see the just sort of uh, abstracted out of focus of the violins hanging in the workshop and you're introduced to the world of the movie, this opening... Oh yeah, this sort of lifting cascade. Yeah. (laughs) 
This is Corleano's contemporary concert hall voice right here at the outset. And then you don't actually hear advanced effects like this very much in the movie until near the end, but it establishes nicely what the point of view is, what the true voice of the score is, and what's our vantage point on this whole movie. And it's also such a wonderful gesture for opening a movie because it feels like the point is out of this one line. kind of prismatically expands into a whole world of the string orchestra. The score, we should say, the score to the movie is almost entirely a string orchestra score. It has a few moments that we've noted here where he drops in a percussion instrument for a boom effect or in the gypsy sequence, a few other instruments to give special color there and a harp in a couple places. But it really is mostly a string orchestra score. And here he's sort of made this gesture as though to say the whole musical world of this movie is the multiplied voice of this one violin and it shows it to you. Each violin has this line, which starts like it's going to be the melody, da 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 da, but then it kind of rises, dissolves into the air, upward and upward. In the score, this is marked as a, uh, he marks each player enters slightly after the previous one, starting with the first desk, mm. should sound free and asynchronous. It's basically everyone in the violin section doing this thing, but multiplied into the fuzzy space of a whole section rather than a soloist. It's a really clever gesture, and it communicates all of that in sound very directly. You don't feel like the technique or the contemporary approach of it is somehow between you and the period or the movie. It's very effective. I guess I came to this score having heard the Altered States music with a little prejudicial expectation that he was going to do some showing off. And when he did this first thing, I thought, well, that might be showing off, but it's really well chosen showing off. And then amazingly, he didn't do a lot of showing off except for in how well he was fulfilling the assignment. Or when he was deliberately writing music that was intended to be showing off. That's right. Paganini is showing off. Right. You know, earlier when you said that it seems like he just gave himself these kind of compositional procedures and trusted that they would do what they needed to do without him having to consciously worry about whether he was making the themes trackable, making them read at one point or another. The flip side of that is it is actually very hard to comprehend any transformation with your ear, even when it's a pretty basic and straightforward transformation, like that Coitus Musicalis piece. When you look at it on the page, it really is entirely gestures from the theme you've gotten used to. They're not even reordered very much. The intervals have been changed a little bit, but the connections here between the first phrase that we've talked about, da-da-da-da-da, and this actually places more emphasis on the second phrase that we haven't talked about. Yeah, so this theme starts with da-da-da-da-da. Well, that da-da is the same as the last two notes of the main melody phrase, da-da-da-da-da. And then da-da-da-da-da-da. That's the second phrase almost intact, just with the interval slightly changed.
but just these slight changes are enough to almost completely throw you off your sense of recognizing it. He may have actually had to be very delicate with what he was doing because, you know, the ear can hardly follow anything. <laughs> it may, in fact, show very careful concern for the listener that there are even breadcrumbs there for you on the second listen to kind of find your way through. Yeah, and then I think the last evolution of this material... The connection here back to the original Anna's theme is very impressionistic and atmospheric. You know, I think it's intentionally tenuous. It's this theme that he has at the end for... Samuel L. Jackson's character, Moritz, yeah, who is this violin expert who's brought in to appraise these instruments that are being auctioned, but he secretly has been obsessed his whole life with this legendary, mythical instrument, the red violin, and suspecting that he has discovered it has some tricks up his sleeve about it. He gets this melody that I kind of feel like is, like we keep saying, it's hard to put your finger on exactly the derivation of it, but I felt it like it's a photo negative of <laughs> the original melody. Like where the original melody dips in this minor yearning tension sigh, instead this Mord's melody is a surprisingly and poignantly major interval that goes in the other direction. They kind of fit together in a yin-yang effect for me. Hmm. Not sure exactly what effect that it has, but it's effective, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, again, a really marvelous elusiveness here. What are we supposed to think about this guy? What is the feeling about this? I don't know. John, why is it Samuel L. Jackson? Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> the New York Times review at the time refers to him offhand as badly miscast. And that seems more or less true. Wouldn't you agree? Or maybe you don't agree. Uh, I didn't think so. I bought him. I thought he did a nice job. I thought that the little reverie that he goes into... He's got a couple of them. When he first picks up the red violin, when he first is introduced to it, he kind of goes off into his mind because he's so struck at the possibility that this is this thing he's been searching for for so long. And that gets this kind of creeping and lugubrious, murky version of Anna's theme. And then later on, he's examining it, and he's in the lab with modern scientific instruments. And the guy who's the lab technician that he's working with is, in fact, Don McKellar, the writer of the movie, gets to be in the movie. Mm -hmm. Do you know what else he's the writer of? I guess not. He has a Tony for writing the book of the musical The Drowsy Chaperone. <laughs> I didn't know that. You couldn't have guessed, could you, from this movie? I really didn't. Okay, well, good for him. Yeah. A anyway, the music here is, again, this kind of creepy and atmospheric, and in this case, it's this, like, high dissonant string stuff where he's examining the violin, and if you listen in it, it sounds like maybe it's got some deconstructed atoms of the melody where you can hear a step here, 
a step going up here, maybe a step going down here, and oh, there's a there's an interval. And it sounds like it's a deconstruction. It's like it's being examined and teased apart, uncovering the mystery here. See, this is a perfect example of how you can create a kind of magic of ambiguous suggestions of things by setting them up properly, because I heard all of that music as overlapping variants of the Chacon chords, that these were sort of Uh, one fading into another. Because there's a sequence earlier when the Chinese servant, Frederick Pope's... uh, His opium guy. ...somehow ends up with the violin and takes it on a ship to Shanghai the travel over the ocean we hear these chords overlapping eerily to suggest the passage of time and to suggest the ocean voyage i thought it's like rolling in the waves yeah beautifully yeah beautiful suggestion of everything that's happening there. I thought those chords were some kind of elaborated derivation, you know, stacked and murkified version of the seven chords. And so then later in the present day sequence, the present day being 25 years ago, in the Montreal sequence, he has a lot of sort of eerily overlapping chords. And I thought this is even more diffuse kind of odor of the underlying Chacon chords. But as you say, we've gotten to the point at this point in the movie where two notes, right, right, an interval, a leap, two notes going up, two notes going down. Is that the sound of Anna speaking through <laughs> the ages? Maybe that's wonderful Yeah, because we have use for that in this movie. We want to be wondering what's speaking through the ages. That's in fact what Samuel L. Jackson's character is hearing in his imagination. Yeah, I wanted to say that I thought that was another really nice Samuel L. Jackson moment when he really does hear the voice of Anna. He hears the full unalloyed version of Anna's theme coming out of the playing of the Isaac Stern character when he picks up the violin to play it. That's not what that guy is playing in the room, but it's what Samuel L. Jackson's character hears because he is in tune with the voice of the violin speaking through the ages. And I thought that was a really lovely moment that he played very well. Yes, I think his sort of wet-eyed reverie is really nice and effective, but his line readings I just didn't believe. Well, that's fair. The speech he gives about how this is the ultimate thing. The perfect marriage of science and beauty. Yeah, that felt hacky, but I chalked that up to the writing because I just didn't think the writing was so sharp the whole time. One of my frustrations with the movie is once I get to the final sequence, I feel like, well, now I have to think about Samuel L. Jackson. Wanted so perfect. Just come. I just don't think he's a a morally ambiguous instrument appraiser. I I don't think that's (laughs) who he is. But that theme. Yeah, is very strangely non-committal and yet still stirring, and it has those enormous intervals in it. Yeah, like I said, it's the photo negative of when the original theme just steps a, a second. Yeah, somehow it's been transformed. The little steps are transformed and the minor size somehow become these nearly unpleasantly sweet major sounds after the movie has been living in minor <laughs> for so long. 
That's true. You've come to think of minor as where the soul is, so this major actually has a morally questionable quality to it. But you yeah. recognize them as related because it starts with that same da-da-da-da-da-da, the same rhythm with the rest on the first beat. The rhythms match them up. But then when he puts the two themes against each other, when you see... This is a great cue. Yeah, Moritz is pondering whether he's really going to go through with stealing it. He's somehow gotten a picture of Anna. Unlikely that there'd be a picture of the second wife of the violin maker in the Grove Dictionary, but there is. And he's looking at it and you hear his theme and her theme, or the theme of the violin, or the real theme of the movie, juxtaposed. And their juxtaposition is sometimes harmonious, sometimes not harmonious. Sometimes seems like it's going toward a meaningful musical integration. sometimes feel lost in it. Yeah, what a wonderful way to encapsulate the dramatic ethical uncertainty at that point without really deciding for the audience whether this is good or bad. I mean, I, I, what did you think of the ending? Is that the right thing that should happen at the end of this movie? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> that theme, further confusing what it is about or means, you do in fact hear it at the beginning of the movie when they're looking at the moon. So that's, I guess, not Samuel L. Jackson's theme, or I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I made that this is all a cycle. You know, it's all cyclical. Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. kind of what I made of the fact that in the end titles, the last thing that you hear in the movie, you know, the main theme gets taken up again by the voice. You know, we saw the moment when the voice got infused into the violin and it turned into the sound of the violin. And so having it come back around at the end and become the voice again gave me this sense of ashes to ashes, dust to dust kind of a feeling. Things back where it started and the spirit is released out of the lamp and whatnot. Yeah, that is probably what's intended there, that when they are at the beginning of the prophecy of the tarot reading, looking at the moon, the weird, impossible for them to comprehend fate of being Samuel L. Jackson's stolen violin <laughs> at the end is somehow all entangled. That really is part of the point of the movie, that this is a movie where they can they can do a hard cut from a scene in 1960s Shanghai to a close-up of a woman talking in 1681 in Italy, and you go, yeah, yeah, this makes sense. <laughs> in fact, about the tarot, Corleano said that his original intent with the Chacon was for each scene where we see the tarot reading to be accompanied by exactly one of those chords sustained through the whole scene, yeah. such that they corresponded to the different sequences, five of them for the five episodes, and two that I suspect correspond to the two major transitional sequences that we talked about, to the gypsy sequence and to the Shanghai pawn shop sequence, uh -huh. which are sort of arranged symmetrically in the movie. Yeah, that's true. He said they tried that and Gerard didn't think it worked, which I can sort of imagine that having a single sustained chord over a whole dialogue scene wouldn't quite read yeah. 
But the idea that this Chacon structure was in his mind the architecture, not just sort of of the meaning of the drama, but of the actual map of the movie, I thought, oh, did he try to make each sequence somehow emerge out of its respective chord? And I, oh, maybe? I couldn't find him saying that he did, but I started to believe I was seeing this, that the first sequence in Italy is the minor third, the suggesting D minor. The second sequence, the Vienna prodigy sequence, would be the fourth G major in the melody. Yeah, you hear more major there. The gypsy sequence comes next. That would be the tritone. And indeed, that's sort of what he has done in that sequence. That's the one where you hear the most of these augmented intervals and sort of dissonances. Right? Maybe? Maybe not. Uh, That's interesting. Maybe that's an idea that he had that was abandoned and then there's some remnants of it. I want to say I don't think it winds up being a functional way that the music is actually deployed, even though perhaps you can find these ways that it lines up if you go looking for it. But I guess that's how the whole thing is. It's an invitation to go looking for it. Oh, I didn't even feel that I'd been invited to do that. Well, right. That was the one that you invited yourself to. Well, because the show invites me to obsess over things until I find something to say about them. So I hear that. On the hunt for something to say, I thought, oh, the chords are tarot cards, as they would be. (laughs) But, you know, are they? Are they not? Who knows? I mean, the honest response to a lot of what this music is communicating is it's communicating some abstract musical thing and the movie manages to be a movie of that. Yeah, well, I think this movie is successful when it is embracing the power and the intrinsic value of abstract musical things and that that is achieved mostly through the work of Corleano, who has written a piece of music that is so impressionistically powerful and evocative as something that gets past your conscious thought and makes you feel the ideas of passion and continuity and skill and time and everything you know just it's a piece of music that just feels like it's about life and the reality of people it's an amazing achievement for that and i think that that coexists a little uncomfortably with the script of this movie which as i said earlier seems to be suggesting an interpretation of how music works that at least I'll speak for myself, I feel like is antithetical to what I think is a mission statement, if you'll permit me, of this very show, Hmm. which is the idea that anybody can think about music. Even if you haven't spent your life studying about it, if you enjoy it, you can have thoughts about it and you can have things to say about it and it's accessible to anybody who wants to think about it. Hmm. That's why I resent this movie's implication that music is this impenetrable, ineffable, unapproachable black box of mystery and magic that is embodied by this inviolable essence, that there's this essence that you must be in communion with in order to be a musician and to appreciate music. And I think that that is not a great way of thinking about music. I dare say it's why my wife the violinist was offended by this, the way the movie presented music as uh, something spiritually ineffable rather than the product of actual hard work. Hmm. Yes, you're right. This show, 
you believe in demystification, and the movie is very much a deliberate mystification. Yes, exactly. That is its intent. Precisely right. The movie intends to mystify, and I bristled at that, and Becky did as well. And I think that that mystification winds up not being a productive juxtaposition with the extraordinary composition that Corleano has achieved here, which, yes, addresses itself to the same mythology that the script is attempting to mystify, but the music does so sincerely and doesn't require you to understand it on a cognitive level such that you resort to crude heuristic devices like the mystifications that the script suggests. The music doesn't need you to reduce the phenomenon of music to these easy tropes that wind up cheapening the actual value of it. The music itself is about its own value, and I celebrate that to the degree that the movie also celebrates that. I think it's really interesting and cool, and uh, when it doesn't, it doesn't. I have a lot of sympathy for that. I think I tend to bristle at the same things, and I want to try to be honest about my own experience, which, like I said, I I knew I would forget the more I spent time with the music, that on my first watch through the movie, I just felt unsure what should predominate in my experience here, what the spirit of this was. But the more time I spent getting to know the score, the more clear and unproblematic it became to me to see this movie as an inevitably crude and thus unproblematically crude projection of the essential mysteriousness of musical experience, which doesn't need to be mystified because it, uh, it arrives mysterious. I think that's just the nature of musical experience, that it's not rational experience and you know, another thing that this show is about is about us trying our darndest to figure out how to express anything that we <laughs> felt about music, because it's hard. It doesn't come naturally. We don't even always manage to say our own feelings about it, even less something objective that other people could agree with. Yeah. The more time I spent with the music, the more the filmmaker's intentions to try to do something that's, you know, about music, because it'll be kind of like music, <laughs> felt more and more inoffensive even if they had fallen short in lots of discreet ways i no longer had a problem with the movie but that definitely took several passes and a lot of time with the material yeah yeah well i agree the more time you spend with the music the more that yeah you're exposed to the inarticulable undertruths of the music <laughs> and the less time that you have to think about you know the glib over simplifications of the screenplay the movie the actual movie started to become more satisfying to me as i felt it more and more musically something i've always felt is one of the essential pushes and pulls in the experience of abstract classical music waiting for the theme that you were introduced to earlier to reoccur in a gratifyingly identifiable full itself form uh, you know, the lover's part, and will they come together again? This is the sort of generalized emotional drama in classical music. In popular music, they get together right away. They just, they kiss, and then they kiss again, and kiss, and kiss, and it's just a makeout session. But in classical music, you often have to live for a long time with the desire to hear the tune again, but you're not going to get what you want. Or you get it, but it's been changed, and you have to grieve for the change, or, or be surprised and delighted by the change. This is the kind of unspecified dramatic form that feels essentially musical to me, and in this movie, the fact that Corleano doesn't have every person play da 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 
You get used to it at the beginning. You learn that this is the movie of da 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 da, and then oh, it changes. It has a lifespan, and there is a sense of where did it go? What has happened to it? Which I recognized from enjoying music, not movies. And then when Samuel L. Jackson hears it at the end, played as straight as can be, the first time we've heard it played so openly, it's moving as a musical event. Yeah, that part was so great. And the musical event becomes the movie event. And it sort of convinced me, yes, this whole movie has been a kind of musical form. Yeah. And that musical validation is what I've been waiting for in the drama of the movie. And that's pretty cool. I'm uh, in favor of that. Yeah, me too. You know, I think hand in hand with what I was saying, that when the movie events are the musical events, then that's really something. Yeah. So kudos to the movie for setting out at all to make something that had room for music events as movie events and enormous piles of kudos to Corleano for writing a piece that feels worthily about the pursuit of musical events at all and so he won the oscar for this indeed he did over another score we've talked about american beauty ah yes which he says he genuinely was shocked when he won because everyone thought american beauty was a shoe-in for winner that year but uh then he won and he's surprised here i didn't think i was going to be here and a up here, and I'm really speechless, but I just want to tell you thanks so much. Well, you wouldn't be surprised if he had listened to our Oscar episodes when you learned that the most predictive determining factor of what wins the Oscar is what movie most obviously you don't have to think about to remember that there is music in it. That's this movie for sure, but I do not begrudge him this Oscar win, even though, as you might recall from that episode, I have a high opinion of that Thomas Newman score for American Beauty. Oh, we haven't even mentioned John Corleano's father, also John Corleano, was a violinist. He was the concertmaster of the New York Philharmonic, in fact, for years. So Corleano had his own personal strong connection to the instrument and the tradition here. He said he had never really dared to write a violin concerto because it was so connected to his father in his mind that it felt loaded. And then having written this movie, he then did write a violin concerto by taking that Chaconne piece and extending it, adding three more movements that are in sort of competing styles, more modernist and unmelodic and sometimes frightening, sometimes dreamlike, all kinds of different places that he goes, and they become a kind of contrasting dramatic space. He said, quote, that the Chacon had given him the opportunity to strip away any inhibitions and write a passionate and romantic essay that I probably would not have written had it not been accompanying a film. It bypassed my censor button. Hmm. And then having bypassed his own censor, he felt like, oh, well, now I can I can write this big piece. And I found listening to that concerto very rewarding because the idea of having a censor button and movies and this sort of romantic fantasy getting past it somehow becomes part of what is being expressed in that piece, at least to my ear. Hearing that theme, which is very stirring every time it reaches the minor chord that's very effective yeah it gets me every time it gets you it's just beautifully worked out and yet 
if he were just writing it for the concert hall, people would say, well, why, why are you being so over the top in 19th century? This is an old fashioned thing. Because he'd written it for a movie, in the world of movies, oh, we're allowed to still be feeling and expressing things like that. Uh-huh. And now there's this concert piece that, yeah, I felt like by getting to be in both headspaces, it was about, I guess, what the movie is about, but even more immediately because it is an abstract piece. You don't, you don't have to negotiate your relationship to Samuel L. Jackson or to having sex while you're playing the violin or whatever. It's just music. I had thought the Red Violin Concerto sounded a little like a kind of crossover attempt, but it's a serious piece. It's a real impressive work. Yeah, you know, I, I knew that I was going to have to record this podcast in which I said the name Samuel L. Jackson a bunch of times. I actually spent a little bit of time practicing because it's it's a little bit of a tongue twister, right? Samuel L. Samuel L. 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 Jackson. I have never found it difficult to say, so I thought you might be joking. But sure, I hear now that, yeah, a little bit. Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel. I, do you know what the L stands for? Because uh, I was just moved to wonder, does it stand for the end of Samuel in fact, maybe his full name, in a very formal tradition, maybe his full, real full name is Samuel L. Jackson N. <laughs> is this a routine you wrote in advance? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say wrote. <laughs> good, good. The answer seems to be Leroy. Well, he's, uh, he's in a lot of movies. Hey, I wonder if he... Uh, I wonder if he has a chance of showing up in in the next movie that we talk about. John, for a change, we know as a fact that Samuel L. Jackson will not show up in the next movie that we're talking about because we are not this time selecting from the entire bucket. It is true. We are still drawing movies randomly, but there is now a crucial intermediate step where first we have drawn at random a ballot, if you will, of 20 possible scores that we could discuss, and we have asked that that ballot be voted upon by our patrons on Patreon. Yeah, we have a Patreon now that we have never mentioned before because we only just started it recently. We're very grateful and gladdened at the response that we've gotten so far, so we definitely want to say thank you to our patrons who have signed up. We're excited to have those people uh, closer along with us as we move forward through this. And yes, so the involvement that we've asked of them is to narrow down the short list of the movies that we will consider for our next episode. So far, it seems like a cool way to get some actual listener input so that the movies we end up talking about, while random to us, reflect something of what people actually care to hear about, because why not? But we still want to maintain the surprise where we genuinely do not know what our next episode is going to be about until we make a real random drawing on the air. So this time, there's actually only a few balls in our lottery ball machine. Oh, does that mean we're going to have to get a new sound effect? Uh, no, they still make a classic racket. But there's only the balls that were actually voted into that lottery machine by the patrons. That's right. But yet we still, as of this very moment, do not know what the fates will assign us for our next episode. That's right. This continues to be nerve-wracking lottery that deserves nerve-wracking music from the movie we just saw, which is clearly this music from at the end when Samuel L. Jackson is crossing the street. By the way, we didn't mention, this is a super cool piece of music. I really like this. This piece of music that just spends such a long stretch of time building up and up and up 
and it builds up so organically and so convincingly that when it gets to the top, when it gets to the real point of arrival and exciting tension culmination, it just really, really earns it. It started low and slow and it's built up so gradually and so organically in such a... And these are those seven notes. These are the notes of the seven chords here now plucked out as a sequence and he octave divides them so that you don't even recognize that they're just an upward scale. They become this angular, frightening thing that repeats over and over like the machine of fate is twirling faster and faster. Very effective. Indeed it is. And here our machine of fate is twirling faster and faster and now the really high stuff is coming in and it's because we've really gotten to the end and my god we've been recording for a long time. All right, I have retrieved one of the only a few balls yes. from the machine, and it says... Ah, our next score will be... Ooh, ooh. Jerry Goldsmith's score... Huh? ...to 1979 sci-fi horror classic Alien. Oh, cool. Classic. Great job, Bucket. Great job, patrons. Great job, Ball Machine. What a cool pick. John... You don't like scary movies? Yeah, but... I am saddened to tell you, this is a scary movie. I like space movies, though. Mm-hmm. The thing is, John, that in space... Oh, no. No one can hear you scream. Oh, that sounds great. It's scary to hear people scream. Yeah, that's true. What yeah. a relief it will be. What a relief. No. <laughs> Not to have that horrible sound. <laughs> no screaming in space. Sign me up. All right, you're going to love it. Yeah. Yeah. I believe this is Jerry Goldsmith's now fourth appearance on our show which i think puts him at the top of the list which for now fair enough this will also be howard hansen's second appearance on the show aha lots to talk about with alien i'm looking forward already and we'll see you here next time and yeah we'll see you next time oh if you missed the patreon announcement we've got a patreon we're putting bonus stuff there there is a bonus episode already there there's going to be more soon there's a whole bonus episode if that appeals to you go check it out yeah patreon.com slash settling the score join us there won't you Thanks for listening. If you like the show and don't want to join a Patreon to like the show, then... Which is totally fine. Which is fine. Yeah, just keep listening to it. Subscribe, leave a review on a podcast place, recommend it to people, and the Twitter account is still at Scoresettlers. Look forward to seeing you all there and everywhere. Look forward to seeing you everywhere. <laughs> Good night.